Good morning. Good morning. A couple of things before I get started. One, that's my favorite book as a child. My kids have the one with my name scratched in it from when I was five, so <laughs> that was lovely. And now there's like a game on PBS Kids app that's like the monster at the end of this game that is, you know, all of the sounds, but that was joyful. Two, um, I'm like halfway through 10 days of antibiotics for strep throat, so not contagious, feeling fine. I'm gonna cough, and I'm sorry, but I just didn't want you guys to be like, oh gosh, what's going on up there? Um, I um, saw on Facebook and then listened in that the message delivered last week um, here was also about grief. So sorry for two weeks in a row um, mentioning grief. Um, I think our messages are different, though. I thought what, didn't, what was shared was beautiful. Um, but I, want, I was noticing, because I was always already working on this talk, and I was like, oh, we're going to do it twice. But a little bit different theme. And I'm going to open um, with a reading from this book. This book is called Let This Radicalize You, Organizing and the Revolution of Reciprocal Care. It's by two uh, abolitionist organizers, Miriam Kabat and Kelly Hayes. Um, and this selection is from a chapter in the book called Hope and Grief Can Coexist. We know hope and grief can coexist. And if we wish to transform the world, we must learn to hold and to process both simultaneously. That process will, as ever, involve reaching for community. In a society where fellowship and connection are so lacking, where isolation and loneliness abound, we are often ill-equipped to process grief. Our fumbling efforts too often end in suppression, desensitization, I can't say this word, desensitization, or despair. Grief can also lead us to retreat and recoil and too often to abandon people to suffer in ways that we cannot bear to process and behold. We say this not because we are interested in blaming individuals, but to convey that we, as people, do have power. Depending on our choices, we can confront our grief and move forward to shift the course of societal action in the face of a massive failure of leadership and institutional abandonment. Grief, after all, is a manifestation of love, and our capacity to grieve is in some ways proportional to our capacity to care. Grief is painful, but when we process our grief in community, we are less likely to slip into despair. They go on to write, fortunately, our system's reliance on us to deaden and dull our capacity for grief presents us with a lever for change. Our oppressors are wholly unprepared to confront a multiracial, intergenerational movement of people who share a loving practice of grief and who are prepared to care for one another and act on one, in one another's defense. As Cindy Milstein writes in Rebellious Morning, our grief, our feelings, as words or actions, images or practices, can open up cracks in all the walls of the system. It can also pry open spaces of contestation and reconstruction, intervulnerability and strength, empathy and solidarity. It can discomfort the stories told from above that would have us believe we aren't human or deserving of life-affirming lives, or for that matter, of life-affirming deaths. Even just acknowledging that we are not alone in our grief can, as Milstein notes, bring a sense of solidarity and collective strength. That strength kindles our energy to face the future, sparking the fire of hope. So ends our reading. And I feel like I could just stop there. I think I said all the things. 
But I, for those of you who have been in community with me for the past couple of years, probably know this, um, I am a big old feeler. I've told all of you the story before about how my sixth grade teacher wanted an example of a sensitive person and used me and I openly cried in front of the class. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I've always been easy to cry. I've always been quick to catch the emotions of others. I've always carried a deep capacity for feeling both the highs and the lows of life. It's just one of the ways I was beautifully and wonderfully made. As a deeply feeling person, I can tell you from experience that this world, or perhaps this culture, is not quite made for us. For most of my life, I've had to combat the reality that most places, spaces, groups, and sometimes it feels even individuals, aren't the most welcome to feelings. Showing emotion in places and spaces where one may not expect to experience another person's feelings can be disruptive. It can make people uncomfortable. Showing emotion, especially sadness or grief, in this culture is also, as we all know, seen too often as a sign of weakness, somehow or of irrationality. Now, at my job, my big corporate job, there is a deep culture of self-improvement and constant learning in the realm of leadership training. We have a large team dedicated to shoring up leaders in our company with skills around giving and receiving feedback, having difficult conversations, being better communicators and presenters, you name it. So this means, that several times a year, I am thrust into learning sessions with a bunch of other semi-willing colleagues where we have to discuss and practice these skills. Like, cool, I don't have to do my regular job, but ew, I have to role play now. Like, <laughs> toss up. Now, in one of the earlier courses offered for newer leaders, the groups go through a session called Flexing Your Style, which is all about learning your own leadership style better understanding your motivations, et cetera, and then learning how to adjust or adapt your tactics based on the personality styles of those working around you. It's not a bad concept. And I'm always a fan of listening to those around you and taking others into consideration when making a plan or executing choices. But it's also, in my opinion, a bit of a failed exercise to try and shoehorn people into one of four limited personality types, and then give them a list of all the traits that have been predetermined will fit you in this personality type. The facilitators of this session, who are great, by the way, they're some of my favorite colleagues, they offer up four types of personalities. The first are controllers. I don't think I need to explain much about that to paint a picture of who the controllers are in the group. Then there are the entertainers, those who lead by influence and engagement, then there are thinkers. Think of these as your more quiet coworkers who like to work through problems on their own, rationally, using lots of data. And then there are, the wait for it, the feelers. <laughs> Those who lead with a people-first approach. You can probably guess which one they told me I was. I was like, no, I'm a controller. And they were like, mm, no, you're a feeler. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> Now when you do this exercise, there are always, always, because I've done it a few times over the last several years, there are always way less feelers in the room than any other group. 
feelers are then described as being emotional and sensitive and being prone without a lot of leadership and development training to be sensitive and possibly struggle with receiving hard feedback. Now, of course, other personality types have negative stereotypes attached to them as well. Controllers don't want to listen to others. Entertainers can lose focus on the goal as they work to engage other people. Thinkers aren't collaborative enough. But let me tell you, feelers get a rough go of it. And it drives me crazy. Let's put aside the fact that I firmly can't stand being a label that seems to block out all the other aspects of my personality or my skills as a leader, because I'm a controller, I promise. <laughs> but also, the fact that feeling isn't automatically listed as a strength makes me bonkers. Feeling is so negatively stigmatized in these environments that it's seen as a hindrance. Phrases like, don't let your feelings get in the way, or let's discuss this as a business problem and not a feelings problem. These are constant in workplaces like mine. And the forever, forever North Star of remaining as objective as possible feels like this carrot dangling in front of me. It's like always threatening to undermine my ability to reach my full potential as a leader. Because y'all, as much as I try to, I can never cut my feelings out of a situation. I will never be a person who is exclusively guided by facts and data. Yes, those are important. Of course they are. But the constant exercise of trying to remove my feelings from situations just feels like trying to mop the ocean. And it also, it feels fairly dangerous. I can say that my feelings have also been a help to me in my career. I've tried to use them as an asset, especially in my work as a communicator. Because no matter how rational a business decision, if the impact to people feels negative or a message isn't built with the experience of the people on the listening end in mind, we all know you're in for a bumpy landing when that message starts getting shared. So it has done me some good. And all that to say, my attempts in the secular job world to temper, lessen, and disengage my emotions, they have felt wholly unnatural to me. And while it's certainly helpful to get better at keeping your emotions in check, I have come to believe that the practice is not so much about feeling less, but instead about not taking things personally. That's another sermon. That angle, it's worked for me in my corporate environment because asking me to feel less is simply not going to work. And after years of trying to see if it was a possibility, like I said, it just feels unfair. It even feels like an unhuman request. Our capacity to feel is a holy gift. No amount of corporate training is going to convince me otherwise. The big feeler in me is one of the personal attributes that helps spark my call to ministry. I remember sitting in church about nine years ago, watching my congregations then minister in action and thinking about her role. The dynamics of it fascinated me. And all at once I had a sense that washed over me as I, that I was watching an example of a vocation where all of me could show up. Feelings and all. There was a warmth that came over me as I began to imagine a life for myself where I didn't feel the need to walk into environments daily that required me to sanitize my values, ethics, and feelings in order to not disrupt a system. My feelings and my constant work to disentangle myself from them, work that has always, as I've said, felt unnatural, 
ended up being the bellwether that rang me into a new era of possibility for myself. And I am very thankful for that. And I also know that I am not alone in my experience of existing in spaces where my feelings are more than unwelcome or, as, or seen as a weakness. I'm sure most of us experience or have experienced this in our workplaces or in other environments. In fact, we live in a society that operates the same way on a holistic level. Making the choice to act out or express big feelings, feelings of outrage or grief or immense frustration, even on an individual level means that you are interrupting the regular course of business. Pausing to acknowledge grief, to acknowledge outrage, in fact, hinders production. Our own personal production, of course, but when expressed in mass, the production of whole groups of people. And production, being productive, being of value, is one of the most highly regarded attributes any one person or group can aspire to in this society. So feelings, grief, are disruptive. And we live in a world that doesn't welcome disruption. Our culture values consistency, ease of movement, and predictability. This means that we do not see opportunities to stop and be with our feelings, to stop and feel things deeply, because to do so often means that the work cannot go on. All of this weighs heavily on my mind right now due to the current tragedies in the world. And there has not been a Sunday that I have been with you these last few years where there wasn't tragedy taking place on a massive scale in our world. I met you in the midst of the pandemic via Zoom as we all did our best to keep moving forward while in isolation. During that time, our society was doing everything it could to keep open for business and keep a sense of normalcy even in the midst of massive death. Even in our quarantine life, it was still hard, if not impossible, to get in touch with the scale of the tragedy around us. For all of 2020, there were no moves made by our government to publicly memorialize the massive loss of life we had experienced. It was shockingly easy, even when in lockdown, to distance ourselves from the tragedy around us. And today, my beloved friends, Today we find ourselves in a time where unspeakable levels of tragedy are befalling the world. And without even needing to touch on the politics of what is going on in Palestine and in Israel, we know that there is a humanitarian crisis and a horrendous level of tragedy destroying and ending the lives of thousands and thousands of people, of children. And what is fascinating to me is how in the midst of these times of social media, where images and videos of the tragedy are widely available, the ability to turn away from them and scroll past them the moment they become too uncomfortable is also incredibly easy. For myself, I am deeply disturbed by how easy it is for me to turn away from the reality of what is happening. I find myself haunted these days, thinking about the fact that I am moving forward with my day-to-day because my responsibilities and the systems wherein I live and support my family dictate that I must move forward, keep my head down, keep working to pay the bills and survive. Because in the moments when I really try and stop and absorb what is happening, when I see images and videos of children who are hurt, 
terrified or dead, when I see images of parents lamenting over their children, it takes my breath away. Because there is no difference, not one ounce or shred of difference between these children and my children. Because I know in the core of me that these children are our children. Because I know deep in my bones that what I'm truly called to do right now is scream in outrage about what is happening. To throw wrenches wherever I can in the systems that uphold this kind of complete turning away from the value of human life. To let my grief roll like a tidal wave to try and offer protection to these kids. If you ask my children what my job is, they will repeat like a mantra the words I have instilled in them since they were infants. I wove it into a lullaby I sang to them every night. They will say, it is my job to make sure they stay safe. While I was writing this, I turned to my five-year-old and I said, Ellis, what's mommy's job? She said, to make sure I stay safe. And I thought for a second, I was like, this is a little like one-dimensional, <laughs> you know, maybe. And I said, and to love you. And she said, yeah, but that's how you keep us safe. I resent the systems I live in that demand I keep up the status quo in the midst of so much tragedy. In my bones, I know it is inhumane. In my soul, I know it isn't right. But that doesn't mean I know what all I should be doing about it. So I'm doing my best to honor that too. I can't help but think, though, that there has to be something in the notion of not just making space for and honoring our grief as individuals. There has to be power in creating spaces for letting our and communicating our grief and our outrage in groups. In public demonstrations, yes, in marches and rallies and public vigils, these are good and helpful outlets. Showing up in our collective rage and grief, as so many of us are doing now, as so many of us have done in Tennessee this year, in the wake of the shooting at the Covenant School, in the wake of the awful legislation that has marginalized or further marginalized so many of our community members. This work has immense power because taking these actions disrupts the systems of power. We at least, even if we haven't had reform yet, we're at least rattling the cages. And we're eking out change in the form of election results or through, and through, excuse me, election results and bringing more people into the fold of resistance through our public displays of emotion and hope. Public displays of grief easily and organically transform into public displays of hope as we galvanize each other with our presence and with our authenticity and as we inspire others to take up our cause. I also believe there are smaller, quieter ways to allow for our humanity and our grief, space to breathe and be in this time. I've seen many UU congregations recently across the country offering up lamentation services, holding time for people to join together and give themselves time to be fully human in the face of such tragedies. I think this is a powerful and healing action. As I've pointed out over and over again here, we don't have enough systems in place that not only allow for, but expect and honor these deep feelings. What could the world look like if we started doing more of that? So maybe my talk today is just a big defense of our emotions and a cry for us to let people feel what they feel more often. Or maybe, <coughs> excuse me, it's simply my own attempt even in this sacred and set-apart space 
to deliberately remind all of us that while we live in a society that demands we keep going at all costs, that demands we press forward and keep disruption at a minimum no matter what we're facing, that I honor that you too are in that struggle, that you too likely have experienced moments where you felt stricken by the fact that we are all just putting one foot in front of the other no matter the circumstances. I honor the resilience in that. I also call out that we don't have to be that way all of the time. There is likely a better way of doing things. That is true. And this is my battle cry and the bumper sticker on my car at another world is possible. Just like the organizers that the organizers Kabah and Hayes reference in their book, making changes like these or creating systems where grief and hope are welcome in public can seem like facing insurmountable odds. But we do have the ability to make change. It has been done before. And we can practice those new worlds in communities like this one. We can get good at it here. And I believe you're already doing that. And then we can go forth from this place and start building fractally in other places. Our feelings, our grief, our rage, our despair, and even our hope, all of these feelings carry sacred energy because they are from you, who is divine. What we do with that energy, whether we use it as an offering or we let it catalyze us into action or change, is holy. I offer my deepest love to you and honor your own struggles in this realm. My hope is that you leave this conversation thoughtful about the ways you can allow and honor your grief in ways that feel safe and cared for, that you may find communities to share it with when needed, and that you may find ways to hold space for others who need space for their own moments of deep feeling. I look forward to the futures we build together where we allow more of our humanity to show itself in more places and spaces, and where our collective feelings and actions can offer more protection to many and can bring our sixth principle to life, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. I'd like to close my talk this morning in the spirit of prayer with these words from Bruce Southworth. O creative spirit of life, in which we live and move and have our being, we give thanks for all of nature's bounties. We give thanks for caring friends and compassionate neighbors. We give thanks for the communion of those who seek to serve others. Each of us carries our private griefs and burdens. Sometimes we can share these, and for the open hearts which respond, we are grateful. Sometimes the world bears heavily upon us, we struggle alone, search the depths and long for healing, for renewed hope, for strength, which give their grace and peace. May we be strengthened in efforts to be of service, and may we always be mindful our lives are filled with privilege, success, and joy that are foreclosed to many. May our prayer be that we always see clearly and keep before us the commandment to care, and may we try to always be inclusive and open, not exclusive and narrow. On this day and every day, may we give thanks, but let us also be dissatisfied with the world as it is, for a new world is waiting to be realized. May our spirits and bodies be nourished and nurtured as we give thanks and praise of all that sustains, heals, and holds, all that is holy. Amen, and blessed be.